Hello, crime historians, and welcome back to another episode of A Crime Story. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and today I will be covering a case from Vatican City. And just a little disclosure before I begin, everything I am saying in this case is factual at the time of recording, and I am in no way trying to bash or bring a negative light to the Catholic Church. I understand that anything involving the Vatican or the Catholic Church has just become huge in recent years due to Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, the movie Spotlight, that documentary, The Keepers. Um, I just wanted to give out that little disclosure and I hope that you enjoy this case. Just a reminder that you can listen to a crime story podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, my website, a crimestorypodcast.com, or Podbean. Without further ado, let me just jump on into this case. As always, let's begin our crime story about the legal system in Vatican City. Vatican City is a incredibly unique as canon law of the Catholic Church is above all else. Canon law is a set of ordinances and regulations made by the ecclesiastical authority for the government of a Christian organization or church and its members. The current Pope, Pope Francis, has stated that principles of canon law are essential to the interpretation and the application of the laws of Vatican City State. Along with canon law, there is fundamental law of Vatican City State, which was ordered by Pope John Paul II in the year 2000. The fundamental law consists of 20 articles and is known as a constitutional law of Vatican City. There is also positive civil law, which is based on the Italian code from 1889. But in 2008, the Vatican announced that they would no longer automatically adopt Italian laws. Also note that the Vatican officials have immunity from international law. There is a judiciary system in Vatican City that consists of the Guidance Unico, a tribunal, um, the Court of Appeals, and a Supreme Court. Now, if you were to commit a crime in Vatican City, you would most likely be handed a fine. But there is a police force called the Corps of Gendarmerie of Vatican City State. Article 22 of the Lateran Treaty provides that the Italian government, when requested by the Holy See, seeks prosecution and detention of criminal suspects at the expense of the Vatican. Also, there are a few jail cells in the Vatican, but if you were arrested on the Vatican's lands, you would most likely be held in an Italian jail. Now, I looked up crimes in the Vatican, and the most common crime is shoplifting, which, why would you shoplift on such a holy ground? But anyway, most shoplifters are handed a fine, and if they refuse to pay, then they are handed over to Italian 
authorities. Now, before researching this story, I thought that only the Pope lived in Vatican City, but in fact, Vatican City has just over 800 residents living within its walls, making it the smallest sovereign state in the world in both population and area. Citizenship is granted by jus officie, doctrine, which means it is appointed to you and it extends to the spouses of the Holy See and their children. The Vatican citizenship consists of two main groups, the church's clergy and the soldiers of the Swiss Guard. Um, There's also a small female population of the Vatican, which only makes up 5% of the total population, and most of those are nuns. Our crime story today focuses on the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, who disappeared on June 22, 1983, when she was just 15 years old. Though she disappeared in Rome, Italy, Emanuela was a resident and citizen of Vatican City for her father, Urkel, worked at the Vatican Bank or at the prefecture as a clerk in the city. Different reports say different things, but just know that he was a kind of a high-ranking member of whatever his job was in Vatican City. Emanuela was the fourth child of Urquil and Maria Orlandi, and she had one brother, Pietro, and three sisters. Emanuela was beautiful, and she had just finished her second year of high school and was known to love music. Emanuela played the piano, flute, and sang in a choir, and she was just very musically gifted. The Orlandi children were known to love to play in the Vatican Gardens, which, what a cool childhood to be able to play in the Vatican Gardens. (laughs) And this case has garnered attention because she was a resident of the Vatican, and the Pope even mentioned her name, which I will go over later. There are crazy conspiracy theories that have popped up in the now 37 years since Emanuela has been gone. Emanuela was out of school for summer break, but she was still attending her music school three times a week for practice in Rome. Emanuela would travel by bus to the school and walk only a few blocks to the building. On June 22, 1983, she asked her brother Pietro to ride on the bus with her, but he declined. He later stated to the media, I have gone over it so many times, telling myself if only I had accompanied her, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Emanuela was late to class that day, presumably to call her sister, who she told that a Avon Cosmetics representative in a dark-colored BMW stopped her and offered her a job. Her sister stated that she should talk to her parents before taking the job, but Emanuela seemed really troubled by this incident, which I would find odd too if that happened to me. Once at her flute lesson, she asked her teacher if she could leave 10 minutes early. She left her lesson around 6.50 p.m. and saw a friend at the bus stop and again reiterated about the representative who wanted her to work for Avon Cosmetics. Once on the bus, she was seen talking to a red-headed woman and was never seen again. 
I could not find any information about what happened the night of Emanuela's disappearance, but I would assume and make an educated guess that her family was worried sick and that the Italian and Vatican authorities were contacted. The next day, Emanuela was officially declared a missing person and her parents called the music school to see if they like garner any more information. Announcements about Emanuela's disappearance were published in different newspapers. On June 25th, a call came to the Orlandi's line from a man named Pierre Luigi, who had stated that his girlfriend had saw a girl who looked like Emanuela playing the flute in Campo dei Fiori, which is a large piazza in Rome. And this girl was going by the name Barbara and selling cosmetics. Another man named Mario, that, yeah, that's right, the names of the two callers were Mario and Pierluigi. I mean, come up with better names, y'all, if you're gonna call. <laughs> Called stating a similar story. Unfortunately, something that happens with missing persons cases a lot, and which just frankly disgusts me, is that people will try to exploit the family, either calling in prank calls or making up a lie or trying to get money. And the Orlandi family was no different. They received these calls and these requests. By June 30th, 3,000 posters about Emanuela and her, the circumstances of her disappearance were spread throughout the internal city. A move that is often criticized, on July 3rd, Pope Jean-Paul II pleaded for the safe return of Emanuela after a public prayer stating, I am close to the Orlandi family. This wasn't the last time that the Pope did this. He asked for her safe return publicly eight more times. This move was criticized because it made Emanuela known. It made her high profile, which is often a really good move and a really good thing in missing persons cases because the more people know, the more people can look out and there is just a greater odd at solving the case. But this move by the Pope put a huge target on Emanuela's back. It made her like a political chess piece. Everyone knew her name now, not just in Rome or in Italy, but all over the world. And they knew that the Pope wanted her back within Vatican City walls. Two days after the Pope's first public appeal, the first of a number of anonymous phone calls began. The man on the other end was given the name The American due to his accent. The American stated that Emanuela had been taken by a Turkish terrorist group and that they took her to secure the release Amendment Ali Agassa, who tried to shoot and kill the Pope. The American later called the Vatican again and asked for a prisoner exchange, Orlandi for Agassa. The American proved that he had Emanuela by sending photos of Emanuela's registration card, sheet music that Emanuela was studying at the time, and a handwritten note from Emanuela. The American also stated that Mario and Pierluigi, the calls that they received earlier, 
were also a part of the organization. The American later reached out to a news agency saying that the Pope only had 20 days to make the exchange happen. A police officer working on the case with the Roman Police Department thought that the American was just full of BS and that he wasn't credible. On July 8th, a man with an alleged Middle Eastern accent phoned one of Emanuela's classmates saying that um, Emanuela was in his hands and that they only had 20 days to make the exchange with the Gaza. The man also asked for a direct telephone line to the Vatican City's Secretary of State. And the line was installed on the 18th of July. A total of 16 phone calls were made by the American from different public telephone booths around Rome. No exchange was ever made, and the American did not contact anyone after October 27th, 1983. Now, there are many, many theories as to what happened to Emanuela, so let's go over them. One theory states that she was lured by a random sexual predator and was raped and then murdered. Another states that the Vatican knows exactly where Emanuela is and has been paying for her expenses since 1983. This theory came to light from a stolen document from the Vatican, which the Vatican later stated publicly that this theory was false and ridiculous. One of the crazy ones was coined by a journalist named Pino Nicatori, who wrote a book stating that Emanuela was a victim of a satanic sexual orgy organized by Catholic priests. Yeah, I know. Like, what? <laughs> In 2008, a former mistress of a gangster named Enrico Del Pettis told authorities that Del Pettis organized Emanuela's disappearance at the behest of an American archbishop named Paul C. Marcinus, who was at the time the president of the Vatican Bank. Remember when Emanuela was seen talking to the man in the BMW? A traffic warden saw this exchange and said that the man looked very similar to De Pettis. Some have theorized that Emanuela's father had evidence of wrongdoing committed by the American Archbishop and then that he asked for De Pettis to kidnap the girl in order to keep Emanuela's father quiet. Another theory is that D. Pettis's group that the Banda della Magliana took Emanuela as a way to try to restore some money that they had lost in the crash of Banco Ambrosario, which the American Archbishop was involved in. In 2012, D. Pettis's grave was exhumed to see whether Emanuela's remains might have been hidden inside with his but nothing matched Emanuela. Yet another theory is that the Pope's personal butler's daughter was being followed for weeks before Emanuela's disappearance. When the butler's daughter told her father about the following, more protection was ordered for her. So after could whoever couldn't take the butler's daughter then shifted their attention to Emanuela? 
Of course, there's a theory with the Turkish terrorist group who wanted to perform the prisoner exchange. Agasa, the man who tried to assassinate the Pope, stated that Emanuela had been kidnapped by Bulgarian agents of the Grey Wolves, a Turkish ultra-nationalist, neo-fascist youth organization in which Agasa was a member. Agasa stated that Emanuela was alive and not in danger, but that he didn't have a direct link to Emanuela. In 2008, an Italian judge, based on the information of the Grey Wolves, declared that Emanuela by then was an adult and was living a perfectly integrated life in the Muslim community that she had probably lived in for a long time in Paris. I mean, I don't know where he got this info from. I don't know where Paris came in. Like, I don't know what this guy was smoking. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Emanuela's case is often compared to another disappearance that happened in 1983 to a Roman girl named Mariella Giorgi. She had only disappeared 40 days before Emanuela, and Mariella told her mother that she had a date and then left the house and was never seen again. In a letter published in 2006, Agassa claimed that Emanuela Orlandi and Mariella Giorgi were adopted as a part of the plan to secure his release from prison. He claimed that the girls were whisked away to a royal palace in Liechtenstein. In a 2010 interview, Agassa claimed that the assassination attempt that he was in prison for was actually orchestrated by the Vatican. Again, where did he get this from? (laughs) He also said that Emanuela was living in a Central European country as a nun in a Catholic monastery and that the Orlandi family knew about her whereabouts and they were able to visit her whenever they liked. In 2019, this case was thrust back into the news when the tombs inside the Vatican were opened. In 2017, Pietro Orlandi, Emanuela's brother, was told by people working inside the Vatican that Emanuela might be buried inside. Sources told him to seek the place where the angel was pointing in the cemetery, which was in between St. Peter's Basilica and Paul VI Audience's Hall. That led Pietro to the tomb of Princess Sophie of Hohenlohe, who died in 1836. When they opened the tomb, it was empty. There was no Emanuela and no princess. The princess's bones were later found to be nearby. Pietro, Emanuela's brother, has stated publicly that he believes that the Pope and the Vatican know exactly what happened to Emanuela. Now, what do you think happened to Emanuela? Do you think the Vatican covered something up? Do you think that the Grey Wolves had something to do with it? Or do you think that it was just a random attack by a sexual predator? I think the prominence of Emanuela's family and her being a Vatican City State citizen had something to do with her disappearance, but I'm not exactly sure what. I don't think this was a random attack, and I don't think the Vatican knows what happened to Emanuela. 
this case has so many angles that it can be looked at from and conspiracy theorists have a field day with this one. Now, I'm going to throw out a scenario. What if Emanuela was abducted as a ruse to get a hefty ransom? And then when the Pope asked for her safe return, Emanuela and her face was everywhere, even in international news. What if the perpetrator got scared and then killed her? I find it crazy that there is no evidence and no remains have popped up in the 36 years since her disappearance. And I have learned in my studies of missing persons cases that there is always some truth in the rumors. So maybe it was the Great Wolves. I would love to hear your thoughts. This concludes the sixth episode of A Crime Story. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's case. You can comment on A Crime Story Instagram at A Crime Story Pod where I will be posting images of today's story or you can comment on A Crime Story Podcast on Facebook or A Crime Story Pod on Twitter or even comment and see additional photos on A Crime Story Podcast on YouTube. I have also started a website where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story underneath the blog tab. The website is a crimestorypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. And if you have a case suggestion, I would love to hear it. Just DM me on Instagram or Twitter or comment on Facebook. And if there's enough open source material, I would love to cover the case. If you could please leave a review of the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it helps others find the podcast. And if you could also tell a friend about a crime story, I would greatly appreciate it. I hope to see you next week where I will be covering my first case from the United Kingdom. Now, this case is disturbing and it is scary and you won't want to miss it. (laughs) A Crime Story is hosted and written by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes. Music is by Ross Budgen and additional story editing is brought to you by my lovely father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to A Crime Story and to my French listeners. I hope you have a great Bastille Day. Unfortunately, this is the second year in a row where I'm not in France to celebrate with y'all, but I hope it is a great day. Anyway, stay safe and be kind. I'll see you next week. Bye. (laughs) 